Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week is Phoebe Watson. Hello! Lovely to have you here. Good to be back. We've been planning this episode for a little while, but... The reality is, is Phoebe might be the only person I'm able to record with for a while. If I can come back for my holidays next week. Yes, as I'm sure the world knows that everything is kind of locking down with the coronavirus pandemic. And it feels very strange recording something that I know is going to go up in a week's time because I guess I feel like I have no idea what the world is going to look like in a week. Yeah, I mean, I'm only going within Ireland and I don't even know whether I'm going to get back again. Yeah, it's a crazy time and we've certainly been praying a lot about it and obviously we're we're very happy to be stuck in our flat together. It means that we get to record podcasts during our work breaks. Which and is, stay safe and cosy. Yes, but at the same time I think we're both very conscious of how much you know, tragedy and upheaval is happening around the world and we're certainly keeping it in our prayers. But Yeah, we hope everyone's staying safe and looking after each other. Absolutely. And yeah, but... In the midst of all of this, our podcast will go on as much as possible. As I was saying, it is the advantage of living with someone that you record a podcast with, is that Phoebe is one of the few people exempt from social distancing of me. (laughs) Yeah, if you end up in self-isolation, I end up in self-isolation. So, you know, we're good. (laughs) And so for this episode... Thankfully, we've kind of got a somewhat light-hearted topic to move away from some of the doom and gloom of the world, but at the same time is maybe a little bit linked in with it. We're going to be talking about some of the darkness and some of the joy and jubilation that can be found in the works of Roald Dahl. Uh, yeah, I think we both had a great love of Roald Dahl growing up, mm-hmm. so it'll be exciting to have a chat about that. Yeah, I was thinking about this, because obviously our last episode was on T.S. Eliot, and I was thinking about the episodes where we've taken a specific author or work, um, on some of the ones that we've done more broadly, I seem to do like in some ways a sort of series of defences of various parts of culture, and not at all that I think Roald Dahl is sort of underread or undervalued. I think a couple of years ago he was named as the UK's favourite author of all time. <laughs> so he's definitely popular. But I think, I guess, when I'm reading and when I'm exploring the world, I'm reminded of that bit in Genesis where God looks at creation and says that it's good. And uh, and so sometimes I just feel like we need to remind ourselves that there's so much good in the world, especially in the world of art and culture and literature. And uh, I know that some people get a little bit squeamish about Roald Dahl, and maybe kind of justifiably so. It's easy to see why he sets people's nerves on end a little bit. But I can say that I certainly, at least, was fortunate enough to grow up with Roald Dahl books, and I adored them, and I think, Phoebe, you were the same. Yeah, Roald Dahl was definitely one of the sets of books we had in our house. Um, One of my particularly memorable, I guess, stories is of my little sister, who also loved Roald Dahl, um, being three years younger than me, taking this massive tome of, like, Matilda and the BFG in as her favourite book, when the rest of her class were bringing in those little slim volumes of My Little Pony. Yeah. I I actually grew up with the same volume, which was actually my neighbour's, but I borrowed it all the time. It had Matilda the BFG and George's Marvellous Medicine in it. It was a great volume. Which is a great compendium of stories. They're, They're just so much fun. It did mean, unfortunately, that I didn't necessarily get through all of the Roald Dahl, but I still probably read about half of them. I read a good bit of them. I actually got a set of audiobook CDs, which Phoebe and I have actually been listening to recently in in preparation for this podcast. But I think I would have got them when I was a teenager. But I I mean, I love them. As we've mentioned, both Phoebe and I do a lot of crafting. And so audiobooks were always a big part of my childhood because you could sit there and I could do my cross stitch and listen to the audiobooks. So I had read maybe I would say about two thirds of them up to that point and then I kind of got the last few once I got that set of audiobooks which is really excellent. I don't think they're the versions, um, in fact I know they're not the versions now available on Audible but the ones on Audible also look great so (laughs) both sets have sort of the greats of English theatre and film narrating the works of Roald Dahl. So, I mean, how how much can you really complain? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've spent the last week listening to The Witches on audiobook, um, doing the funny combination of 
embroidery mm-hmm. and the gruesomeness, gritty detail of the witches. Yeah. And I think that it was interesting the books that I pulled out to sort of refresh my memory in the run up to this podcast were the ones that I guess were, I instinctually knew that they were maybe the most risque of all of his works. So I reread The Twits and I reread The Witches, which I loved both of those books growing up. But certainly, if you're looking for the books that maybe get parents or teachers or whoever worried about the content of the books. The Witches and the Twits are definitely the two that (laughs) are the most grisly and the most gruesome, at least in my opinion. I think maybe parts of the BFG are in there. Obviously the BFG has a lot of very nice things with Sophie and the Big Giant and Searching for Dreams and stuff like that. But you know, in between that it's all about giants eating people and all of the different ways that they taste and all of those grisly details. I think that's what Roald Dahl is really known for is these great fast-paced someone I read one of the things which was so accurate which was saying like he's a really verbal writer like things are always happening in in great kind of verbal ways like clatterings and gallopings and galumphings and all of those great kind of verbs but in in the middle of these sort of very bright and cheerful stories often about like sweet shops and chocolate factories and all of those things that you have these darker elements of really serious even like family abuse or villainous principles or you know like I said sort of human guzzling giants or children destroying witches and witches that kill children and all of those sort of kind of grisly and darker elements and I think that's what he's really known for is the combination of those two things. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating that he's able to balance them so well. Mm-hmm. And I think we were saying that the Quinton Blake drawings illustrating them add so much to those tales as well. Yeah. In highlighting both both the grotesqueness, but also the sweetness and the imagination and the colour and the vibrancy. They're wonderful. There's another set of illustrations. I'll need to... I'll put the illustrator in the show notes that I loved for he is a cut I knew I knew him for has Mr. Fox and things like that so there are other illustrators who do a great job but I think everyone really associates rolled out with Quentin Blake and those it's the sort of jaggedy lines and the kind of caricatured nature and the, the almost like the sloppiness of the drawings has a sort of like ties in with the way that Roald Dahl uses language in this very fun and playful way. Yeah, there's something childish both in the drawings and the use of language, Mm -hmm. which is very skillfully done. Yeah, there was this really great article that both Phoebe and I read, which was in The New Yorker, which was about Roald Dahl and both his life and his style of writing. But it opens with something which I think is very astute, where the writer says... Dahl is also, however, a children's writer whom many adults over the years have disliked or distrusted, though they have not always found it easy to say why. It is not because his work is sexually explicit, a common complaint about, say, Judy Blooms. There is no hint of sex or even romance in Dahl's children's books, most of which are intended for pre-adolescent children. Nor are they disappointing as pieces of writing. Quite the opposite. Dahl's books, which move along at a seductively brisk pace, are propelled by crisp verbs, clambered, chirruped and rasped, and delightful made-up words, swishfigler, snozcumber and vermicious canids. Adults' objections to Dahl have more to do with his sensibility. There is his bathroom humour. The protagonist of the BFG, the big friendly giant, insists on whiz-popping, his word for farting, in front of the queen. And Dahl has a waspish tone, unsentimental, ever so slightly sadistic and archly amusing, that's closer to Evelyn Waugh than to Beverly Cleary's. And I think that's really accurate, that it's not even just that there's sort of gross or grisly things in it, but there's a real sense of humour behind all of that and a sort of delicious joy in it. Yeah. And, And the fact that he's very much looking at the world with a sort of smirk. Yeah, and I think there's something in that it's very enjoyable for children, but can be a little bit hard for us to come to as adults. Um, I know particularly when I was reading George's Marvelous Medicine, when he's pulling out all these different things from the cupboard and 
tipping them all into this pot. I'm sure as a child that I enjoyed that tremendously. Yeah. As an adult, I'm there like crying inside and going, but the cost, but the cost. Like imagine oh, really? all my shampoo gone. <laughs> I wouldn't, I've never even thought of the cost. I've just thought of how completely dangerous it is to suggest to kids to go around and put paint thinner into bleach and whatnot into a big vat and then feed it to someone. <laughs> um, I mean, that too, but I generally assume that even kids are coming at these things with an assumption that you don't try and emulate them. Yeah, but I think what we what we might do is actually start off with talking about some of the things that we liked and appreciated about Roald Dahl growing up and even now, and then move into some of the areas that people kind of might find a bit more distasteful. Because the thing that I love most about Roald Dahl is that he takes such a joy in the world, and I take such a joy in enjoying his writing. And so I think it's just nice to sit and dwell with some of the most famous stories of childhood and say like, why are these so compelling and why are they so um, fun and joyful? Yeah, absolutely. Like for me, I loved Matilda, particularly the magic of that world, the idea that you might be able to move something with your eyes, the kind of drive for intelligence as well. Mm -hmm. And yet the acknowledgement that such a really intelligent kid could also be really good friends on a level with the other people in her class, that it yeah. wasn't a superiority thing. And then that battle against the evil teacher, the like camaraderie of the class against her. Yeah. It just it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of like grizzly bits again, like a kid being made to eat his entire chocolate cake. Mm-hmm. Um there's that kind of delight in going, ooh yeah. <laughs> as well. And the imagination you can put into things like the chokey. Yeah, for sure. I think actually the the point you were making about the protagonist is really important because I think so many of Roald Dahl's child protagonists, they're kind of, I think they're extremely interesting because they combine two things. They combine, a lot of them are sort of naturally quite timid and shy and even like a little bit anxious and yet they're sort of put in these situations where like kind of greatness is called on them. But on the other side, they also have a slightly cheeky, a slightly funny, a slightly naughty element to them, which I think a lot of kids also sympathise, that you're not just saying that only quite bookish kids are, they're the right type of kids, and if you're sort of more rambunctious and more out there, that that's like being the wrong type of child, you know? I feel like there's a lot of space for all kinds of children in in Roald Dahl's book because we were saying that like Phoebe and I grew up I think we were sort of on the side of being more timorous and rule abiding and um, not as adventurous. Yeah I was definitely quite rule abiding which made reading about that kind of mischief all the more fun. Yeah and I think it made me braver in a way that you know that you would see Matilda sort of pointing her finger and being that kind of strong figure within her class and that there's a sort of confidence to her as well that's very appealing I know Phoebe and I went to the the musical which Tim Minchin wrote of Matilda which I think is great it was so good I think it's so fun and they have a song where the kind of the main line is sometimes you've got to be a little bit naughty this is when Matilda's going to like dye her father's hair yeah and I also loved I grew up I think my mum will laugh because I think the first movie I ever went to see in the cinema was Matilda but I actually ended up crying and had to leave but I think it wasn't because I was actually afraid of anything she said it was because it was too loud for me like just just literally being in a cinema was too loud for me and I couldn't take it but I think it might have been Matilda but I I certainly grew up with it I think the Danny DeVito movie is just kind of unparalleled it's so good and it's very it's different in the to the book in a way but it really kind of captures that chaotic, anarchic spirit of the books. Um, Yeah, I think that was one of my first lessons in being able to love both the film and the book, despite them being different. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, But I think a lot of young kids, girls in particular, but I don't, I I know my brother loved Matilda. Yeah, as did mine. I I think it's one of the great examples of kids being able to, to not assign stories as being sort of like girls' stories or boys' stories. I think Roald Dahl does that bridging very well where it's sort of everything for everyone. Yeah, I think there's something delightful in it just being a kid having an adventure. Yeah. And that kid is 
always someone you can relate to mm -hmm. in some way. Yeah. Regardless if they're braver than you or have different skills, you can associate with them and like join in their adventure. Yeah, exactly. I think it's really telling how much kids need those sort of surrogate characters to help them understand how to navigate the world. Because I think we forget how like restricting and small it is to be a child. I was thinking through the stories and I was thinking of how many of them have to do with the child not only just being small as being a child, but actually being in a situation where they're like even smaller than that. So if you think of, say, the BFG, where Sophie is like this tiny little figure next to the big friendly giant, or the witches when the, the boy, who we realise isn't actually named in the book, but the, the protagonist of the witches, the little boy, he gets transformed into a mouse and then gets carried around in his grandmother's handbag. That like, there's this sense of size and scale being very important. Or even like James and the Giant Peach where he's talking to insects and he's flying around on a giant peach. Like, yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. Yeah, that there's this real overemphasis on the scale of you between you and other people. And I think that's where the delight in George's Marvelous Medicine comes because he's shrinking people, you know? There's this real emphasis on how small you are as a child and in that how kind of powerless or how vulnerable you are. Yeah, and I think there's also that emphasis on even the good adults not necessarily listening to you. Or having your um, perspective. Yeah, that which, too. Which is like uh, literally having your perspective, that they're not on your level which I think is, is really telling. I, I Again, from that, we, I do have other articles to quote, but I have to say this one from The New Yorker was really kind of superlative, and I'll certainly link it in the show notes. But the article quotes Dala saying, I have very strong and almost profound views on how a child has to fight its way through life and grow up to the age of, let's say, 12, Dahl told in a BBC interview in 1988. All their lives, they're being disciplined. When you're born or when you're one or two or three, you're an uncivilized creature. And from that age, right up to 12 or 15, if you're going to become civilized and become a member of the community, you're going to have to be disciplined, severely. Stop eating with your fingers and spitting on the floor and swearing and anything else that you want to mention. And who does this disciplining? It's two people. It's the parents. Although the child loves her mother and father, they are subconsciously the enemy. There's a fine line, I think, between loving your parents deeply and resenting them. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I think as you grow up, it's so easy to forget how much your natural inclinations as a child have to be curtailed. And I'm saying, because even he says have to be. Like, if you're going to become a part of the community, there is a process you have to go through in childhood, which is learning how to mix with other people and act appropriately and be polite, which are all super important, but... At the same time, it's this constant lesson of like, no, this thing that you want, you can't have now. And not only that, but I, as your parent, am the only one who can allow you to gain this thing that you want. So if I say no, you know that you're powerless to get it then. Roald Dahl really manages to get into a child's brain of like how much they want to break free and strike out and, and do their own thing. Yeah, and I think there's also that important lesson of like the world being out to get you in a certain way, but you have the power to fight against it. So there's the kind of idea that you accept some of the rules, but you also challenge them. Yeah. Um, which I think is a little bit risque, but also important. Yeah, we were saying how a lot of his stories have a sort of revenge plot element, which yeah. again is probably the most, I would say even more so than any of the kind of, you know, fart humour or anything like that that are in the books. I'd say that the revenge element is maybe the hardest to sort of reconcile. Because you think of it, it, it comes in Matilda when the children are striking out against the Trunchbull. Or when she's like playing tricks on her parents. Yes. Or as on a slightly different note, and I think this really ties in with some of the ways in which that kind of negative aspect of saying that like you should take revenge on the people who do you ill. In Fantastic Mr. Fox, where it's based on the fact that the the farmers, Bogus Bunce and Bean, are these evil people and it's not sort of bad to steal from them. I think actually one of at one point one of the foxes is like, is this wrong? And his dad is like, no, it's fine. But what is sort of key to a lot of those is that they're community efforts. Like when the foxes start sort of industrialising, stealing from the farmers by digging tunnels underneath their farms, it's because they they have 
not only cut off their own means of getting food, but in the process, the farmers have cut off all of the animals' means of getting food, even the rabbits, because none of them can come out of their holes without being killed by the farmers. And so it's this effort to feed everyone. It's a community thing. And the same with Matilda, where it's all of the students overthrowing the Trunchbull, in a way. Yeah, it's like a freedom for the whole school, an effort led by Matilda, but kind of assisted by everyone else as they, like held her out of the school essentially yeah because you even said it when you were saying how much you love that book that there's a real sense of like everyone coming together to accomplish this great feat of triumph yeah i think even in like the bfg where she goes for help yeah or in the like in the witches where it's him and the grandmother yeah there's always like a tag team there Mm -hmm. and it usually includes adults as well yeah which is interesting and i think there's that kind of sense of that it's about righting a wrong. And I think in some ways we can sort of forget that that even that can be sort of, our friend Father Connor pointed out when I was talking about this to him, about the timid heroes of, say, Matilda or James and James and the Giant Peach. Like, he pointed out that that's actually quite biblical. Like, you have David and Goliath. David going up against this huge monster. Like, you can almost imagine the Quentin Blake drawing of David and Goliath. Oh, that would be great. I want that to exist. (laughs) Right? Or, like, Isaiah or Jeremiah, that these figures are small and oppressed and that they have to struggle against a great evil that is an authority over them. Yeah, and yet that they're given that power supernaturally to struggle and win. Yeah, and I think it comes back to that Cheston quote, which gets sort of, because he doesn't say it in a pithy enough way that it's always like restructured and then it gets attributed to like Neil Gaiman or someone else. But the actual Cheston quote about fairy tales and how they help you overcome things is, fairy tales then are not responsible for producing in children fear or any of the shapes of fear. Fairy tales do not give children the idea of the evil or the ugly. That is in the child already because it is in the world already. Fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of bogey. What fairy tales give the child is his first clear idea of the possible defeat of bogey. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he has had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. Yeah, I think that's so important that as children we have an instinctive knowledge of the evil of the world as well as the good yeah and a fear of that unknown and yeah that part of growing up is also learning to fight that evil yeah and also there's a very fine line i think in some of these stories between revenge and like a just war almost yeah and i think that article that i keep coming back to has that point where he says that like parents seem to think that and like a strike against any adult is a strike against all of them no matter how evil that adult is that in in acting out against an evil adult is not saying that you should act out against all adults and in fact you know particularly in his later books and it was explaining how in his second marriage Dal had a lot sort of softer and easier approach to to his writing and and those are the stories like the witches where you have that grandmother who's so such a beautiful family character. Yeah, that's a really interesting dichotomy because I think The Witches is one of the darkest books. Yeah. But you have one of the most solid, like, family relationships in it. Yeah, and even the BFG where her she doesn't have any family figures but the, the big friendly giant is so... Such a charming and such a lovable figure. Oh, he's the best. I love the BFG. But even within the midst of this sort of topsy-turvy world where there are evil and villainous adults and even just parents but that there are also good ones as well and that even the good ones make mistakes we were talking about this how the sort of most complex characters in Roald Dahl's writing are the adult figures who aren't villains but they still make mistakes like Miss Honey even like that she's so paralyzed by fear yeah I think it's again important that adults aren't perfect either Mm -hmm. and you can't just expect the clear dichotomy between the good and the bad. Yeah. Like, I think there's very clear evil characters in Waldell. Yeah. But then you have the good but misled characters who are very distinct to that and they're not villainized. Yeah. Um, like Miss Honey isn't villainized for not being able to stand up to the trunch ball. Yeah. Which would be quite easy to do in a way. Or that it's her more proper place to do it. It yeah. shouldn't be up to Matilda to do it. It should be Miss Honey, even despite how scared she is. You exactly, know? yeah. 
you know, the, those characters are at the heart of what makes them so lovable. I think it's also in some ways a preparation for adult life in mm-hmm. that I think as children we can sometimes think that adults can solve everything. Yeah. And that when you're an adult you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And yet sometimes these books teach us that even as adults you're constrained by things and that you have to work around that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And that sense that, as Chesterman was saying, that there is bad things out in the world. And I think when you're a child, it can be confusing and distressing because bad things do happen to you and you don't have a lot of ability to reason like how and why because you can't see the motives of the adults around you. When we were listening to, we just finished listening to The Witches last night, there was that bit at the end where it talks about the boy having been turned into a mouse and living with his grandmother and all of the inventions that she sort of created to help him live. And it reminded me of the fact that Roald Dahl's personal life was quite... He he seems like one of the most fascinating... A, a bit like his his world, it's full of good and bad and, and grisly and, and dark, but also light. But one of the things that is sort of the sweetest thing about him was that when his son was sick, he worked with someone to develop a sort of valve mechanism to help the, the drain the fluid in his spine, I think. And that valve has been used in thousands and thousands and thousands of, of cases. Yeah, that's so fascinating that his love for someone could overflow into that creativity. And, and that he's such a, like mechanical and practical kind of thinker that like he would just say, well then, well then I'll just make a valve, you know? Uh, or as in the case of the end of the witches, that like this old woman would say, well, now I've got a mouse instead of a grandson. So what am I going to do about it? Well, I'll build these ladders and I'll do all of these things. That, And I think that's what comes back to what I was saying, how I feel like Roald Dahl loves the world and not in a, not in a materialistic way at all. In fact, he seems very reticent about a lot of modernity. Like you get that character of Mike TV in the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, and he very much slams greed as well. Like yeah. I'm thinking of the witches and you've got Bruno, but who's eating all the time and yeah. he's like slamming that greed down. Yeah, he's he's almost a sort of hypocritical writer in a way because he has both sides of the coin where he writes about chocolate factories and then tells you all for being too fat. Like... <laughs> Uh, and also I noticed that that he does seem to have a distinction between, for at least some things, for, between adults and, and children, where in The Witches it's advised that uh, children don't bathe so that the witches can't smell them because their their smell is covered up by other smells then. Once a bath once a month is quite enough. <laughs> exactly. But then I was just thinking of the start of Fantastic Mr. Fox, where Bean, who like drinks all of this cider, is, is talks about him reeking and the fact that he never bathes, and it's like this really evil characteristic about him, you know. Or in the Twits, where yeah. like part of the evilness, particularly of Mister Twit, is the dirt in his beard. Yeah, so that like in some ways there is a sort of he delineates between the expectations between children and adults. It's okay for children to be dirty, but adults had better clean their act up. <laughs> but that, like I said, I think, and I, I think a lot of Chesterton when I think of Roald Dahl, because I think he has a real sense of delight and joy in the world. And, and I think it comes across in the way he writes. And as I've said before, I'm really kind of like a language head and I love thinking of linguistics and language. And so growing up with all of the fun wordplay and all of the made up words was so fun and delightful. But I think that comes from someone who kind of like enjoys the readiness of the world around them, that they can just pick out these things and, and make those kind of fun worlds. I've got the the quote from the BFG where he's talking about the giants going off to eat other people. And it's just full of all of... Because the BFG in particular, because he doesn't speak like proper English, he has all of these great words. And I think that... So the, the BFG is probably the best book for these kind of word plays. But bone-crunching giant will be galloping to Turkey, of course, said the BFG, but the others will be whiffling off to all sorts of flung-away places like Wellington for the booty flavour and Panama for the hatty taste. Every giant is having his own favourite hunting ground. Do they ever come to England? Sophie asked. Often, said the BFG. They say the English is tasting ever so wonderfully of crod scallop. I'm not sure I quite know what that means, Sophie said. Meanings is not important, said the BFG. (laughs) I think weirdly that almost relates to the episode I just did on T.S. Eliot, where he says that you get the sense of great poetry before you you understand it. That like, 
Roald Dahl really gets that sense that you don't have to know every word to be able to understand what's happening. And that's such a wonderful thing for a child as well. Yeah. The idea that you can read something mm -hmm. and not know the word, because the word doesn't have a meaning. Yeah. And yet be able to relish that and enjoy the book from it mm -hmm. and the story that it's creating. And I think there's a sort of childlike glee to the types of words that he creates. Absolutely. And uh, cumber. Snozcumber is a great... I was saying we don't have any frobscottle to be drinking while while we're uh, we're recording this. But like I said, I, I think that really comes from a delight in the world. Like when you think of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the lists of all of the different types of chocolate or there's... The, like even in like Fantastic Mr. Fox where he's going through all of the different things that the bogus Bunsen bean eat and they're disgusting but they're kind of fun in that way because there's there's a sort of readiness and earthiness to them and I think that's where the sort of more you might say scandalous elements of his writing come in is that that word vulgar which means of the people and you know that it's common or like low brow in a way that people kind of turn their noses up at but like the bfg whiz popping whiz popping this is it there's a whole there's whole sections of the bfg devoted to farting and i think people can be very uh, just concerned about that kind of crass humor and i think it comes from a good place i think if you look at the world you can see um, and i'm going to say i don't actually believe that roald dahl falls into this category but you can see a lot of very crude and brash and crass kind of humour and I do think that that as Catholics and as Christians that you can be like unsettled and unhappy with the vets but I think the difference is that to me when I think of that kind of humour there's a sense of hating the world behind it because it's sort of like winking and nodding and saying aren't we all disgusting and isn't that terrible deep down, you know? Or turning your nose up at it and going, aren't other people disgusting? Yeah, that like, to me it comes from a lack of sort of innocent joy in the world. Um, and innocent joy doesn't necessarily mean that you don't find farts funny, but it means that you don't have this sort of sideways disdain for what it means to be human. Yeah. And that I think, well, actually I think what it does is it, has no sense that like humanity has a dignity and so there's only nihilism and, and a desire to watch the world burn in that kind of way um whereas i think whenever you get it in rolled out it can be grisly and it can be dark but behind it lies this moral world of goodness and behind it lies a sense that creation is good and that life is good and that it's a sort of i think cheston calls it a sort of eccentric joy to be alive yeah, and I think there's also that unity in it that mm -hmm. you're laughing about going, oh, aren't we ridiculous? Yeah, I think that's really key because I, I, you know, I think I've had that a lot of my life where I certainly have, there's particular people in my life who I spend the whole time with them laughing and we're laughing at the world and we'll see someone wearing a funny hat and you'll laugh at that, but then you'll fall down the stairs and laugh at yourself. And you know what I mean? That it's not about pointing at someone and saying, aren't they silly? It's about pointing at someone and saying, aren't we silly? that there's a sense of community and camaraderie in it, that like maybe the world is ridiculous. Yeah, and I think there's an interesting mix of dignity and ridicule there. Yeah. That because we see the dignity of, of humankind, therefore we can laugh at our ridiculousness. Yeah, that, we, that you just don't take yourself quite so seriously. Because obviously Chesterton talks about this at great length and he has all of these great points about it um, and I'll quote some of them here but he, he goes on to talk about how like so much of this comes back to the fact that we're sort of supposed to be like God and yet we're so far from that that it can't not be funny but he says I believe firmly in the value of all vulgar notions especially of vulgar jokes when once you have got hold of a vulgar joke, you may be certain that you have got hold of a subtle and spiritual idea. The men who made the joke saw something deep which they could not express, except by something silly and emphatic. They saw something delicate which they could only express by something indelicate. And then later he goes on to say, If you really ask yourself why we laugh at a man sitting down suddenly in the street, you will discover that the reason is not only recondite, but ultimately religious. All jokes about men sitting down on their hats are really theological jokes. They are concerned with the dual nature of man. They refer to the primary paradox that a man is superior to all things around him and yet is at their mercy. 
that's so Chesterton to be able to take a joke and make it theology. Yeah. I think there's a wonderful bit, another Chesterton article, where he's been accused of being funny and therefore not serious. And he says that it is not I, it is not even a particular class of journalists or jesters who make jokes about the matters which are of most awful import. It is the whole human race. If there is one thing more than another which anyone will admit who has the smallest knowledge of the world is that men are always speaking gravely and earnestly and with the utmost possible care about things that are not important but always talking frivolously about things that are. Men talk for hours with the faces of a college of cardinals about things like golf or tobacco or waistcoats or party politics but all the most grave and dreadful things in the world are the oldest jokes in the world. Being married being hanged. <laughs> it's so true that like it's the most serious things that get the most laughs because they're also the most universal and there is a like a, a, like a core of truth to them. Yeah and I think also that you can say something very serious by making a joke of it mm -hmm. which I think is something we can lose sometimes. Yeah, I think there is a real merit in not taking the world so seriously and so somberly. And that in that article you just quoted, he, he says that the opposite of funny is not serious. The opposite of funny is just not funny. <laughs> and he has this great bit where he, he lists out, uh, I think it's George Bernard Shaw is both serious and funny and then or sorry sincere and he says that and you are sincere but not funny and your average cabinet minister is not sincere and not funny <laughs> yeah i think it's that like grain of sincerity that we seek yeah um regardless of how it's portrayed in terms of solemnity or humor yeah. And I think Roald Dahl gives us that window to look at the world with a sense that magic is possible and that glee and joy and humour are all of the things that we can expect in the world, even when there are evil villains and even when the world is sort of out to get you in a way. Yeah, there is still that darkness there mm -hmm. that yeah, is lightened by the humour of it. I think particularly the twits, yeah. where you're kind of enjoying the grisliness mm -hmm. of reading about Mr. Twit having all this food in his beard. Yeah. And that's a really clever way of approaching it. Mm -hmm. And like, I think children kind of like to be disgusted anyway. I think it's, yeah. always, it's always, we all do. I mean, like, I think that's why sort of horror movies or even, you know, those kind of like slasher fics are so appealing. You want to be sort of taken out of yourself for a bit and be able to be afraid of evil and scary and disgusting twits, you know? I think that's why I think a lot of kids sort of manifest in their minds that maybe one of their neighbours is a curmudgeonly old man. It's like To Kill a Mockingbird where they have all of these stories about Boo Radley and it forms a sort of mythology in your mind as a child and you like go up and knock on the door and run away that like you're sort of manifesting those evils around you. Yeah, I particularly see that in like the twits where you can really imagine them as like your evil neighbours. <laughs> yeah. I, I love the image of their house that has no windows. I know. They complain that people would be looking in and it sort of never crosses their mind that maybe they would like to look out. What a horrible <laughs> house to be in. <laughs> and I think that that's maybe another area where people get a little bit worried about Roald Dahl in that there's a sort of very clear correlation between whether you're ugly and whether you're good. <laughs> yeah, there's some very hideously ugly characters who represent the great evil of those worlds. Yeah. We're just going to pull out some quotes that, you know, kind of counter that within his books. But I think it is worth just pointing out there's a really great YouTuber called Jen Campbell and she does book reviews, but she talks a lot about deformity and disability within fiction and, and art and culture. But she also talks about it a lot in children's fiction and talks about, you know, growing up and seeing yourself in different characters and whatnot. And I think it is worth pointing out that it doesn't make Roald Dahl's books bad or that they shouldn't be allowed because she agrees that she grew up and loving them and, and still loves them. But that, again, we should also look forward to seeing other representations and not just taking the sort of easy way out of saying, like, evilness is ugly, you know? But I think at the same time, while there is that, particularly I would say in The Witches, where like the witches are so kind of like pulls out things like, you know, not having hair is is a sign that you might be a witch, you know? Yeah, that, I think that's a really interesting dichotomy because you start off learning about the witches as 
it could be your ordinary sweet school teacher. Yeah. And that somebody beautiful could be evil. Yeah. But then obviously underneath, she doesn't have hair and she's got claws and mm-hmm. no toes. Yeah. It's funny because like you said, that, that you have this element where beauty can be deceiving, but also that ugliness can equal evilness. Yeah. I think an important quote to counteract that is also from the twits. It's where he's talking about he's talking about Mrs. Twit and how ugly she is. He says, The funny thing is that Mrs. Twit wasn't born ugly. She'd had quite a nice face when she was young. The ugliness has grown upon her year by year as she grew older. Why would that happen? I'll tell you why. If a person has ugly thoughts, it begins to show on the face. And when that person has ugly thoughts every day, every week, every year, the face gets uglier and uglier until it gets so ugly that you can hardly bear to look at it. A person who has good thoughts can never be ugly. You can have a wonky nose and a crooked mouth and a double chin and stick out teeth, but if you have good thoughts, they will shine out of your face like sunbeams and you will always look lovely. And I just love the little drawing after that, which shows the one just before it shows Mrs. Twit is a young woman, like, growing uglier and uglier as she gets older. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, her hair sticking out and her nose growing. And then the one after that shows a woman with all of those features that he's just described who you would run up to and hug. Yeah, with a lovely face. Like, her no- her teeth are sort of sticking out from her face and she's got a wonky nose. and But she looks so friendly and appealing in a way. That... Yeah, and I remember that sticking with me as a child. That, that idea that... You hear the phrase, beauty is only skin deep. Mm -hmm. But I think that was one of the ones that brought it home to me that it's far more important how you act. Yeah. And that people will respond to that inner person far more than they'll respond to your outer appearance. Absolutely. It is an important point within it because I think you can, you shouldn't let yourself get too drawn into the ways that evil is necessarily represented because I think Roald Dahl really understands that it isn't just as simple as saying if you're ugly then you're evil you know yeah I think again it was similar in George's Marvelous Medicine Mm -hmm. where the grandmother is very ugly Mm -hmm. but she's not evil because she's ugly she's evil because she doesn't seem to care about other people only herself and is a miserable old grouch (laughs) (laughs) So then I guess the thing to sort of round this up is that if Roald Dahl's books have all of these elements that are pushing the boat out a little bit that parents are worried about, are we saying that these are appropriate books for for Christian and Christian children? And I think the answer to that will always, first of all, come down to a, a slightly personal thing. There will always be types of books that will suit some children and will not suit other children. But I would say yes, I think these are good books for children. Yeah, I think they can be scary. And I think it's important that, like with any book, mm-hmm. that they're read with the parent almost and in the knowledge of the parent. Yeah. Um, but also I think that scary books don't mean that you shouldn't have them available. Like I had a nightmare about the witches as a child and mm-hmm. could never go back to that book. Mm-hmm. And I did regret reading that one because of the nightmare. Mm-hmm. But I also had a nightmare about some like reader's copy, like fairly innocent book. My, mm-hmm. my imagination could come up with anything. Yeah. So it wasn't the book itself that I blamed for the nightmare. I just knew my imagination could pick up on something yeah. and give it to me. And I would never have wanted to give up yeah. the rest of Roald Dahl for that sake. Yeah, and I think I think it's a good point that we say that it is important to be with children in their reading journey and uh, make informed decisions about what they're reading and when they're reading it. But at the same time that I and a point that I was really anxious to make because I have a I have a background in medieval studies and Anglo-Saxon literature and early medieval literature and there was a time when grotesque and humorous and even vulgar and honestly crass stuff was mixed in with Christian literature and was not only mixed in with it but was part of the teaching mechanisms of homilies like if you take something like the Canterbury Tales the Canterbury Tales is one of the most scandalous things that I've ever read there's really like there's women sticking their bottoms out of windows and all kinds of like really scandalous stuff that like is properly like salacious in parts but it is about 
a group of pilgrims going on pilgrimage and then they stop and tell all of these scandalous stories, you know? But it remains a sort of deeply kind of with Christianity really interwoven in it. And even further than that, and as I said, I was talking to my friend Father Connor and we were discussing how the sort of homilies of the medieval time were all informed. Essentially, priests would get these books of bestiaries, which is just different books with like descriptions of animals and, and magical animals and all of these things. And each of them came with a little story about how that particular animal acted. They weren't usually particularly accurate, but they would have a sort of moral lesson in them. But they, they could be all kinds of things. I think there is one about beavers castrating themselves or like they're kind of crazy and they're full of fart humor and they're full of edgy jokes really and the purpose was to use those in homilies as teaching mechanisms the one the one that I would be most familiar with I don't know whether it was used in homilies but it was certainly part of a religious book was is, is a set of texts called the Exeter riddles which are a set of riddles in old English again even they are sort of they're innuendos. There's one which is like, the answer is a key. And it's like, I enter at night into the hole. And like, it's all very sort of like innuendo-y. And I'm not saying that we need to necessarily bring that back in every kind of way. But there was, at that time, before the Reformation and before the sort of move towards Puritanism, that had a lot more like maybe there was also a lot more sin because of it. I don't know. But there was a sense that, like I was saying, that sense of joy and jubilation and, and laughing at the world and finding that sort of exuberance in the world. Yeah, I think whatever about the humor style, we could definitely bring back that joy in the world. Mm -hmm. And how we do it, I think, is up to personal taste. Yeah. And I think Chesterton, once again, has a really good point on this. He's actually complaining about, I think, teetotalers. He was very much against all of those things. I, I don't necessarily have his particularly strong views on that, but he said... Idolatry is committed not merely by setting up false gods, but also by setting up false devils, by making men afraid of war or alcohol or economic law, when they should be afraid of spiritual corruption and cowardice. The Muslims say, there is no God but God. The English Muslims, the abstainers, have to learn to remember that there is also no Satan but Satan. He's being very cheeky there, but there is also a sense of not creating fights where there doesn't need to be fights in some ways that not creating things to be scared about and preserve our children from in sort of every kind of bogeyman yeah because i think the more we do that the more we miss what we should actually be protecting them from and that's what he's saying that like spiritual yeah. corruption and cowardice are actually much worse for our eternal souls than even war which we can all agree is a very serious thing to be concerned about but that he has that sense of the greatness of the scale of what we're encountering. And I think the message of Roald Dahl's stories where it's about essentially good conquering evil and, you know, powerless people stepping into their power and responding to an almost supernatural call, like when they get their sort of magic powers or whatever it is, and using that for common good are all things that actually bolster us. Yeah, I think there's that sense of the fight against the evil and the community spirit. And that in learning about the dark things of the world that you're actually strengthened by them. There's one quote here from an article in The Independent by Joe Summerlad where he says, Dolls' novels are often dark affairs with cruelty, bereavement and Dickensian adults prone to gluttony and sadism. The author clearly felt compelled to warn his young readers about the evils of the world, taking the lessons from earlier fairy tales that they could stand hard truths and would be stronger for hearing them. And just as a kind of maybe a, like a final note, there's also a quote from an American theologian called Frederick Buchner, where he says, Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. Yeah, I think that's such an important lesson for kids. And I think the world of Roald Dahl really opens that up for you. Absolutely. But now... Both of us have to actually, we have to return to our jobs following our our lunchtime break. So I guess we better round up with some of the things that we're enjoying at the moment. So Phoebe, do you want to go first? Sure. I've been enjoying the new Studio Ghibli on Netflix. I did a very mean thing while Rachel was away and watched My Neighbour Totoro without her. I've never and, seen it. <laughs> and I have promised to watch it again with you. Yes. It's just a wonderful 
movie that kind of intertwines the fantasy of Alice in Wonderland with the very real, very human struggle of a family whose mother is in hospital. Mm-hmm. And it's just beautifully told, beautifully drawn, the music is gorgeous. I would highly recommend checking out all of the Studio Ghiblis. And I think they're a really good example again, like if you think of Spirited Away, that's another movie that has dark and scary elements of it and has but at the same time has a sort of joy and exuberance in the world yeah absolutely so yeah there's such a delight in nature in them yeah definitely as for what i'm enjoying at the moment uh we had the great pleasure before all of the sort of planes were stopped in getting a lecture from elizabeth lev who we spoke about in our episode on on sacred architecture i think it's called um from saint peter's to notre dame and she's just amazing. She did her, her talk was on the Sistine Chapel, and I think it was called Behind the Veil, and it went through all of the different elements of the Sistine Chapel, and also she went through even the restoration process. And it was so interesting, and she's just such a compelling speaker. And I, I think I've already recommended her book, but I'll say it again: How Catholic Art Saved the Faith. It's a great book, and we had such a great time listening to her speak. Yeah, she's so good. She's just so interactive as a speaker that bring such a depth of knowledge Mm -hmm. to a topic and yet you don't have to know anything. Mm -hmm. And it always feels like she's ready to go deeper. I think it was so impressive when we had the Q&A sessions, which I don't know about you, Phoebe, but I often find in Q&A sessions they can be a little bit painful because you often find the kind of edges of the speaker's knowledge of a particular topic when someone asks something and they're like, I'll uh, send you the notes later, you know? And I don't think Elizabeth Lev has ever had any (laughs) instance of that because she just always seems to be able to go deeper and say, yes, I love this topic. Yes, even more. Like, yes, I can tell you more and more behind that. There just seems to be that that sense of that the knowledge is always going back. And once again, I think it really ties in with our theme, which is a sort of joy in the world. Like, she just imparts such joy in the idea that there's this whole world of art and architecture out there for us to understand and help us to understand God. Yeah, it's incredible. So I guess that's it. Uh, We, please God, will be coming to you again soon. And uh, thanks so much for listening. As we said, stay safe. Maybe listen to the whole catalogue of Risky Enchantment podcasts while you're stuck at home. (laughs) (laughs) As long as it doesn't interfere with your working from home. Yes. And we we will certainly be keeping everyone in our prayers. And as always, you know, you can follow us online. We're on, well, I'm on Twitter. The podcast is on Instagram, uh, Risky Enchantment Podcast, where I'll be posting lots of uh, photos of my many, many Roald Dahl themed items that I own. So that'll be going up in, in conjunction with this podcast. And thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye.